Dr. Primiano Iannoni is a senior emergency medicine consultant and emergency department director at Chiavresi Ligra, Italy. He has been working as emergency medicine consultant since 1993, and he has a postgraduate diploma in medical management and governance and has completed an advanced master in governance and clinical research. His specific interests and skills are evidence-based medicine and clinical governance, health technology assessment, medical education, and emergency ultrasound. He has got several years of experience in high-level teaching, has published more than 140 papers, and is the Italian reference for the pre-hospital and emergency medicine Cochrane Initiative, as well as the editor for the Journal of Medicine at Journal of Emergency Trauma and Shock. Dr. Yanoni joins Critique Podcast today to discuss the guidelines and the errors that may be present in them. Dr. Yanoni, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. <laughs> the number of guidelines produced every year is quite impressive, and in fact, more than 1,000 guidelines have been indexed in PubMed every year since 2010. We know the reason behind that. We all rely on guidelines in our daily practice, and we use guidelines to optimize patient care through standardized and unbiased recommendations. So is this really true? Guidelines are or should be statements that they include recommendations intended to optimize patient care, that are informed by systematic review of the evidences and an assessment of the benefits and harms of affirmative options, uh, produced by panels of uh, renowned experts according to formal processes and graphs. Guidelines are considered unbiased and valid, having the same level of certainty of the conventional scientific method. Uh, following the inception of the evidence medicine movement in 1992, of such guidelines, I mean, synthesizing readably, fast-growing, unmanageable, and often contradicted by, the, by medical knowledge, have been produced. Errors, however, intended as recommendation, failing to offer the right advice, in clinical guidelines may occur. However. So. Why do errors occur in guidelines, and, and how do you know how often this happens? Um, uh, first of all, the poor quality of biomedical research on which guidelines rely upon is the first and the most obvious reason of their untrustworthiness. Indeed, the over 50% of primary studies are designed without the appropriate references to existing knowledge, and the other uh, 50% of studies fail to minimize the risk of systematic errors bias effectively. According to one study, analysis of randomized clinical trial data led to conclusions differing from that of the original ones in 35% of cases. Okay. So is there a case of industry having to answer for some of these flawed guidelines as well? Uh, indeed, a substantial relationship exists uh, uh, between trial sponsorship and outcomes, in the sense that uh, industry-sponsored trials are more likely to give favorable results than non-sponsored uh, trials. And the trials with disappointing results are less likely to be published than those with favorable findings, uh, the so-called publication bias. Sometimes uh, key safety and effectiveness data are kept deliberately unavailable or hidden to regulatory agencies and the biomedical community. And in some circumstances, trial results incorporated onto guidelines resulted false or discredited. 
Lastly, uh, considering the large time often required to produce a guideline, the temporal gap between current best evidence and the guidelines based on data studies is another element potentially lowering the overall reliability. Mm. So do you think the guidelines potentially reproduce or even amplify the errors of their primary research? Uh, yes, guidelines are at risk of reproducing uh, and uh, uh, even amplifying the errors of the biomedical uh, research, especially if uh, they are not scrutinized carefully. Okay. So, in summary, when the primary research is of poor quality, the guidelines can fail to identify limitations and therefore replicate the errors. So, what about the methods used to produce guidelines? Uh, yes, errors may occur for intrinsic defect of the guideline-making methods too. Uh, since the inception of evidence-based medicine in 1992, a lot of guidelines have been produced under this new umbrella definition. So with evidence-based medicine and the improved awareness in the medical community that evidence can be flawed, do you think the quality of guidelines has improved in, the la in recent years? Guidelines differ from earlier consensus-based guidelines for their multidisciplinary panels, systematic review of literature, and the credit recommendation related to level of evidence. And uh, this should have carried a more balanced and reliable recommendation. However, the overall quality of guidelines did not improve substantially through um, 2000 year. And two decades later, little or no progress have been made on this regard. Uh, in spite of the evidence-based quality mark, most of their methodological aspects remained opaque, uh, poorly reproducible, and confusing, limiting their implementation, comparison, and critical appraisal. This is, this is a really interesting topic, and I'm sure um, an extensive topic to fully discuss. But do you think you can summarize the intrinsic defects in the guideline-making process that leads to errors? Yes, first of all, there is limited panel composition with and staking, uh, in the sense that excessive specialists and experts, uh, positive or absent of other key stakeholders like GP, internist, expert of methodology, and patient representatives, has often produced unbalanced recommendations in favor of new treatments and interventions. Staking of panelists, of course, when uh, experts known to be favorable or skeptical about a given treatment or intervention are deliberately chosen to influence a conclusion. Then uh, there is the problem of managing of consensus within the guideline uh, panel graph in the sense that with the formal, uh, without formal consensus management methods such as nominal group techniques or uh, Delphi methods, the risk of uh, unbalanced recommendation is very high. There is the problem that uh, there are uh, sometimes wrong methods of appraising, rating, and synthesizing primary evidences. Uh, the sense that uh, um, evidence-based medicine introduces the concept that the higher the level of evidence, the stronger the recommendations are. However, a clear definition of quality of evidence and strength of recommendation was often lacking. Underlying definitions were confusing. Reproducibility and comparability of recommendation on the same level of evidence poor, and other factors besides the study type influencing the overall assessment of benefits and harms um, implicitly and unpredictably considered.
cloudy and unclear formulation of recommendation make the picture even worse. This leads to the development of the grade method, uh, which considers explicitly and puts in perspective all of the aspects involved in driving sound recommendations. Then, uh, lastly, there is the problem that guidelines are normally not peer-reviewed as other medical biomedical articles. So, absence of reliable and accurate assessment of quality of evidence by um, independent experts uh, and users also militate against the quality of guidelines. Well, this grade system certainly seems useful uh, as, and a useful tool in appraising guidelines. And Hopefully we'll see its use more in the future. Um, moving on from that, what, what, what is the impact of conflicts of interest? Uh, conflict of interest among panelists, external reviewers, uh, or at the level of medical societies sponsorizing guidelines represent a special and pervasive problem. Indeed, one of the most disturbing aspects of conflict of interest is that it is actually impossible to distinguish whether the bias of the recommendation relies upon a vested interest or not. 87% of guideline authors uh, add some form of interaction with the pharmaceutical industry, and 59% of authors add relationships with companies whose drugs were considered in the guidelines they authored, according to some studies. And uh, in spite of the efforts made so far, conflict of interest is still a serious problem of many guidelines. Indeed, rarely uh, this mechanism we have highlighted operates separately in determining the production of trustworthy guidelines. On the other hand, whether there is a negative or a multiplicative effect of each of these factors on the global reliability of recommendation is unknown. I'd, I'd like to think that errors aren't too frequently found in guidelines. Um, if you consider how many times we as, as busy clinicians rely on their recommendation, do you have any data on how often errors do occur? Uh, there are uh, um, solid and robust uh, data uh, which uh, suggest that more than 50% of current guidelines have substantial methodological flaws and other shortcomings which could lead to errors. Uh, medical specialty society guidelines are at particular risk of being of lower quality in respect to those sponsored by public health agencies. In fact, many professional societies are sponsored by industry are reluctant to adopt higher methods of quality assessment of evidence such as grade and still allow a substantial conflict of interest among panelists and reviewers. Uh, in any case, direct evidence of guidelines probably or definitely forward is uh, growing. So, without getting anyone into trouble, can you give us any examples of flawed guidelines? Uh, yeah, there are a lot of examples, <laughs> unfortunately. From uh, um, most, uh, most cases involve uh, the cardiovascular field. Uh, for example, hypertension guidelines. Uh, mm -hmm. There are some guidelines and through uh, last years, where uh, treatment uh, targets differ from one, gui one guidelines to another, um, differ as regard of period of observation, diagnosis, intervention, initial investigation, uh, role of lifestyle advice, uh, 
Um, another good example is about treatment uh, uh, of, uh, um, of um, perioperative beta blockade, mm. where uh, latest guidelines, uh, despite strong evidence of an excess of mortality and serious scientific misconduct related to the pre-trial series, um, still recommends beta blockers for non-cardiac surgery, mm. uh, in spite of evidence against Another good example is the um, use of alteplase for stroke treatment. Since uh, strong treatment in favor of alteplase, in spite of uh, a risk of serious adverse events and questionable long-term disability benefits are recommended. Uh, indeed, there are extensive conflicts of interest, methodological flaws, and the evidence of panel stacking in some of these guidelines. Um, other, other uh, last example about um, street screening procedures. The most famous is the uh, prostate-specific antigen screening procedure, mm -hmm. which um, there are discrepancy across guidelines about this. Clinicians, how can we defend our patients from these errors? Are there any red flags? We're well versed in the recognition of the unstable patient, but how would we suspect a guideline that is flawed? Well, uh, to help guideline producers and users, at least three quality assessment tools exploring several domains of the guideline making process have been proposed. The Institute of Medicine Standards of Trustworthiness criteria are easily accessible. Um, red flags raising the depth of untrustworthy guidelines have also been suggested on an empirical basis by Lancer and Ioannidis. Uh, screening guidelines with one of the both cited quality assessment tools enables to spot guidelines at high risk of untrustworthiness. Undoubtedly, this instrument explores key quality domains of guidelines, allow the standardized evaluation and comparison, are useful for auditing purposes and monitoring quality of guidelines across societies and organizations sponsoring them. However, these tools offer only very indirect evidence of possible errors. Instead, no cutoff point distinguishes guidelines at low, moderate, or high risk of untrustworthiness, and relative strength of association between each quality item and risk of error remains virtually unknown. Furthermore, we often need to decide about the trustworthiness of a single recommendation rather than of a guideline as a whole. Therefore, we can't apply this method to decide with confidence whether a given recommendation is correct or not. When more than one guideline on the same topic exists, it is possible also to see whether unexplained differences between recommendations occur taking this as a proxy index of trustworthiness. However, also concordance of recommendation may be misleading and discrepant, and confusing recommendation leave the readers uncomfortable even more. Another method is to cross-match guidelines to primary evidences. Rarely, experimental or robust observational evidence suggests that the given recommendation has produced unintended harmful effects. For example, the relationship between a sleeping front campaign and excess of mortality from sudden infant death syndrome, or more recently, the risk of overdiagnosis related to prostate, breast, or thyroid cancer screenings. 
Otherwise, a cross match of the recommendation produced by guidelines in the body of related primary evidences is the essence of this direct approach. In most instances, it is indeed the only and the ultimate way to assess the fast workings of a given recommendation. It tells us an in-depth critical appraisal of the evidences behind recommendation of the overall benefit-risk profiles of the intervention and a careful analysis and anatomy of the decisional approaches and the possibility of the error leading to the original recommendation. On the other hand, this method is extremely time-consuming, requires considerable expertise of evidence-based methodology, and it suffers also of poor applicability and reproducibility, especially in case of sparse and conflicting evidences, filled in with expert opinion, varying values and preferences of patients, variable cost and cost-effectiveness of the intervention across countries, and different models of healthcare delivery. Furthermore, this approach has been evaluated only in a few studies. Therefore, it is unlikely that this method can be adopted competently and timely on an individual basis by the average guideline user. Wow, I feel a bit overwhelmed now. Are you able to suggest an algorithm? Approach. Because um, since we we lack at all sufficiently quick, sensitive, and specific to value correctly the recommendation offered by clinical guidelines. We suggest a, a simple, a simple approach that uh, starts with the assessment of individual patient needs and its translation onto an answerable clinical question in terms of patient intervention comparison and and, and outcome. Uh, then uh, familiarity with the great approach in rating evidences would be of great help to understand the key question behind the board of evidences. Uh, then uh, w once we have selected the guideline to assess uh, its quality, we, um, we should look at uh, initially at the conflict of interest uh, in the sense that if there is conflict of interest, the risk of um, unreliability is, is very high. Then we must see uh, whether there is uh, or not a multidisciplinary involvement. Uh, and in this case, whether, uh, whether there, is a, there is not uh, a multidisciplinary involvement, also the risk of untrustworthiness raises. And then we must look at methodology, uh, methodology used. If grade method has been used appropriately, uh, it is likely that recommendations are uh, reliable. However, um, also in these cases, we must be very careful about trustworthiness uh, of recommendation, and uh, primary studies need to be assessed carefully in any case. So, um, probably, as Richard Orton said, uh, evidence-based guidelines uh, should force us to strengthen primary research literature in a way that we don't normally do. Um, so deficiencies of any of these three elements I have highlighted would suffice to be highly skeptical to warrant the closest critical appraisal of primary evidences. This is the advice I feel to, to suggest uh, to, to users. Okay. So uh, what do we do in the case of, of a flawed recommendation that we've identified? 
the most important problem is with patients. Uh, fear of medical legal and the major uh, malpractice claims may push uh, uh, physicians to adopt flawed guidelines. Uh, failure of to communicate this concern effectively with patients contributes to the perverse effect of these wrong guidelines. Indeed, reasons why not to follow an untrustworthy recommendation should be openly and clearly presented and discussed with the interested patients to avoid unnecessary harm. This is uh, uh, the true essence of the shared decision-making process. Uh, privileging a patient-centered approach in managing the evidences to individual patients' needs so uh, globalizing evidence, centralizing decision is the best way to manage uncertainty with professionalism, avoiding risk of defensive medicine. With colleagues, uh, discovering a suspicious recommendation may be a good occasion of a professional and scientific growth at any level of professional practice. Uh, that the flowered recommendation is adopted as a part of local policy is an even stronger reason discuss and amend that clinical pathway with colleagues and the health organization. With the scientific community uh, in the health scientific community pending trustworthy uh, um, recommendations should elicit uh, an in-depth grade basis, the multidisciplinary and conflicted reassessment of that guidelines on an urgent basis, considering the huge negative impact that following uh, a wrong recommendation might have. Uh, the scientific organization producing that, that guideline should be notified and the peer-reviewed journal should be involved more heavily in this critical appraisal process. If concerns are justified, uh, adequate explanation of the critical incident should be offered uh, by guideline sponsor and the panelists. Methods of guidelines making process eventually reassessed and that recommendation amended uh, mm. So, in conclusion, guidelines will continue to be used as a daily clinical tool, and it's a matter of fact we cannot blindly rely on guidelines for every case and every circumstance, um, if they produce, even if they're produced by sound specialty and societies. What's your overall suggestions and recommendations for, for the use of guidelines? Well, uh, guidelines are useful in assisting physicians, uh, policymakers, and patients in deciding the best choice between alternative care options. Uh, based on evidence prepared by experts, backed uh, by renowned scientific societies and organizations, they are highly appreciated and considered by the vast majority of physicians. Indeed, the uh, errors of guidelines are not infrequent for the occurrence of methodological flow, limited panel composition, composition and conflict of interest. And uh, these factors make them, at their extreme, more marketing tools of industry rather than valid decision support types. Um, in these flyweight guidelines, uh, an evidence-based terminology rather than methodology is adopted, so that the evidence-based quality mark uh, is misappropriated by vested interest. In interest. Uh, industry ties to guidelines sponsor participa participation of, uh, of main investigators sponsored trials to guidelines panels involved in rating the same studies is an issue, still not resolved and allowed to a large extent. 
especially by medical specialty society producing guidelines, even if the distinction between those who produce evidences and those who rate them should be clear and quietly acknowledged. Yet, to recent data from New England Journal of Medicine, a conflict of interest regulation demonstrated that this is not the case. Resistance of guidelines sponsors to acknowledge and fix strong guide recommendation timely is another reason of great concern. Considering the asymmetry of information available to guideline users. In fact, also if a public marketplace of guidelines has been evoked where guideline users can gravitate toward the most aggravated and reliable recommendation, there is still no such a virtual or physical space. So average, physician, average physicians and guideline users are left alone in taking decisions about the trustworthiness of guidelines without the time to assess their readability carefully under the pressure of the fair of medical legal claims and the robotic appliance of routes and recommendation, which claims to be evidence-based but targeting much more often generic performance measures than purely relevant patient outcomes. The evoked reform of guideline-making process, especially by scientific societies, is unlikely in the foreseeable future, considering that uh, there is resistance of key scientific societies to adopt the more stringent criteria about conflict of interest, uh, grade methodology, and composition. Rather, the quality of guidelines on medium term could improve much more under external pressures, such as streamlining a cross-match of suspicious guidelines with primary evidences in a publicly accountable, conflict-free, non-commercial and transparent way with the support of statisticians, methodologists and other stakeholders. Uh, rating organization society producing guidelines by an independent agency without ties to the industry and uh, giving this rating the highest resonance within the scientific community. And uh, meanwhile, becoming familiar with the critical approach, looking carefully at primary evidences to which guidelines refer and considering to what extent they are truly relevant for the specific context we face remain probably the sole and ultimate way to preserve our patients from the risk and ups of wrong guidelines. Dr. Yanani, thank you for your time today. It really was an insightful review of both the good and the bad of the guidelines on, on which we rely. Thank you very much. The relevant uh, articles and references mentioned in this podcast will be available from the Critique Library. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not visit our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of critical care education and quality assurance. Critique can be found at www.crit-iq.com and Crit Nurse at www.crit-nurse.com. Alternatively, all our podcasts are freely available on the iTunes podcast store.